We're going to go ahead and read Luke 14, 15 to 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to grasp the implications of this glorious parable that came from the lips of our Savior, that the rich truths that it brings would not be lost on these ears. Especially, Lord, I pray for anybody here who has never been born of the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you might do that work in their life. And so, Lord, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Sunday, we were looking at Luke 14, verses 1 to 14. And in that passage, Jesus is invited to a dinner party. And instead of just kind of getting along with everybody and minding his P's and Q's, <laughs> Jesus instead determines that he's going to do good to the souls of the people that are there, and so he ends up reproving them of certain sins. He talks about their hypocrisy, their pride, and their selfishness. And basically he says, you guys are practicing, or you're pursuing the wrong practice. You're practicing hypocrisy rather than integrity. You're pursuing the wrong place. You're vying for the highest places instead of the lowest places. And you're pursuing the wrong people. You're throwing these parties for your friends and relatives and rich neighbors instead of the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And so he exposes various sins that were going on in that dinner party. But when he gets to the very end, he says in verse 13, When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, when Jesus says the resurrection of the righteous, that causes light bulbs to start going off in one of the persons that was sitting there. And that's why in verse 15, one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, and he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So somehow this guy's connecting the resurrection of the righteous to eating bread in the kingdom of God. And there's no wonder he did that because Jesus did that. Do you remember back in chapter 13? In chapter 13, Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. And in verse 28, he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, Okay, hell is like this place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, but heaven is a place where you recline at table in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. So heaven's like a great feast, a great banquet, where people recline at the table and enjoy this wonderful, sumptuous feast and have fellowship with each other, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. So this fellow here puts those things together and he says, okay, you're talking about the resurrection of the righteous. Well, that reminds me of the kingdom of God and everyone eating bread in the kingdom of God. And of course, all the people that were there in this home expected that they were going to heaven, that they were going to recline at the table in the kingdom of God. 
And so he's really saying, we're all going to be so blessed because we're all going to sit down at the table in the kingdom of God. And that causes Jesus to respond with this particular parable. Now the reason why this guy looked at heaven as like this eternal banquet is because the prophets sometimes described it that way. Look with me back in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. It's going to be a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So here he's talking about this eternal kingdom, this eternal lavish banquet that he describes in verse 6. And what happens when people are invited to this, this banquet, this great feast? Well, we're told that death is swallowed up for all time. We're told that tears are wiped away from all faces. We're told that the reproach of God's people is removed forever. And we're, we're told that they are given salvation at the end of verse 9. So, tears wiped away. Death swallowed up. Reproach removed forever. And salvation bestowed on God's people. And it's all part of this lavish feast. This great lavish feast that God is going to give. And so that's why this fellow automatically starts thinking about a banquet when Jesus mentions the resurrection of the righteous. And so Jesus now is going to respond to this fellow about, yeah, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Notice though how verse 15, excuse me, verse 16 begins. What's the word that starts verse 16? But. It's a word of contrast. It's as though Jesus were to say, yes, you're right. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. But there's a problem. There's a big problem. Nobody wants to eat bread in the kingdom of God. Everybody would rather have something else than what's on that menu at that feast in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes on to tell this parable to show them that there's a real issue here. You guys think that you want to eat bread in the kingdom of God? Well, do you really want what's on the menu? And so this is his response to them. As we move through this parable, I, I see three really crucial truths that are brought out. First of all, the lavish gift of God. Secondly, the universal refusal of man. And then thirdly, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. So the lavish gift of God, the universal refusal of man, and then the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going today. First of all, the lavish gift of God. Notice two words in verse 16. The word big and the word many. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. So this is not your run-of-the-mill dinner where you have a few people over and you have a regular, ordinary dinner. This is a big dinner. Try to imagine it with me. This is a banquet. In fact, most modern versions translate the word instead of dinner, they translate it banquet. This is like a huge feast. And as we read through the story, we're going to find out that he invited most, if not all, of the, the town, of the people that he lived in. He just invited everyone to come to this feast. So this is a huge feast, a huge banquet that he's throwing. So it's a big dinner. And as you come up to that dinner, you would notice, first of all, that there's appetizers waiting. You know, you've got onion strings, 
and jalapeno peppers, and you've got um, those hot wings and all those things that you really love to eat. So that's just the appetizers as, you, as you're waiting for all the people to arrive. And then you notice over there, they've got this big old long salad bar with everything you can imagine to choose from. And then several soups on the other side. And then you see off in the distant, the fatted calf has been killed and it's on the rotisserie. And you've got chickens that are being roasted. And you, all manners of meats are being provided. You've got side dishes. You've got homemade baked bread. And for dessert, there's cakes and brownies, and there's pie a la mode. I mean, it goes on and on and on. This is a kind of feast you've, in your dreams, you couldn't imagine a feast like this. It's a great big dinner. And he invites many people. This isn't just for his household and his servants and his family. This is for the, practically the whole town. So, if this is a big dinner, and he invites all these people to come, what does that tell us about the character of the man who throws this dinner? Number one, he's wealthy. You've got to have a lot of money to, be, to put on digs like this, don't you? It's going to cost a lot of money. Secondly, he's very generous, extremely generous. Notice it says that he was giving this big dinner. So people aren't expected to pay an admission fee when they come to the door. It's free. He's just giving it away for all these people in his town. So he is wealthy and he is generous. And of course, who does this man in the parable represent? Yeah, he represents God the Father. Exactly. And that's why Jesus tells the parable this way, because he wants to show that God is wealthy and that God is generous. Uh, it reminded me of this passage over in Ephesians chapter 2 that states it so clearly. Starting in verse 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy. Now there we have his wealth. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. So there we have the wealth of God described. He's rich in mercy. He has great love to bestow. But he's not only wealthy, he's also generous. Look at verse 6. And he raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Do you see God's generosity? He wants, in the ages to come, He wants to show how generous He's been. And so He's going to put us on display. Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit Trillion D, or whatever. We're all going to be on display in heaven. And He's going to show us how generous He has been by bestowing mercy and love and grace on sinners. So it's a lavish feast. Second thing you, I need you to notice is where Jesus is in this whole parable. We know that God is the man who's giving the dinner, but where is Jesus in this parable? Or is he in this parable? I'm going to seek to prove later, I believe that the slave that's sent out is supposed to represent the Holy Spirit. So if the, if the man represents the Father, if the slave represents the Spirit, is Jesus to be found anywhere here in this parable? I believe Jesus is the feast. He's the food on the table. Do you remember Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who eats me shall never hunger. He who drinks of me shall never thirst. He says over in John chapter 7, Oh, it's right around verse 37. This is the last day, the great day of the feast. And Jesus said, let me just pick it up here so I don't misquote it. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
So if you're hungry, come to me and eat. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Basically, Jesus is saying, I am the living bread come down from heaven. I am the living water that's provided for those of you to slake your spiritual thirst. And here we're told in Luke 14 that God, or this man representing God, gave this great big feast, this dinner. For God so loved the world, that what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. He gave the dinner. He gave the food. He provided the feast. He spread the banquet table. So Jesus Christ, I believe, is here in this parable. He's the dinner that God has provided. That Really, this, this dinner is emblematic for salvation. This is a gospel feast. This is a dinner that equates with salvation. And men are invited to come and partake of it. And Jesus is salvation. Without Jesus, there's no salvation. If you have Jesus, you have salvation. That's as, as easy as it gets. Now notice verse 17. <clears throat> and at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited. Now that's interesting. These people had already been invited. There was a pre-invitation that had gone out. In that particular culture, oftentimes when you're having a big shindig of some sort, you would send out these pre-invitations to let people know it was coming in the general time frame. But because this was such a massive undertaking, he didn't know exactly when it would be ready. So he sent out pre-invitations to people. And then when it was finally all ready, he sent his slave out to gather them in. Now, who are the people that had been invited? Yeah, the Jews, the people of Israel. They had been invited. They had been invited for centuries. God had been sending prophet after prophet to tell them of the coming of the Messiah, who would deliver God's people, who would save them. So the invitation had gone out that somebody's coming. The feast is going to be here. Don't know exactly when, but it's coming. And so this invitation had rolled out to them. And so now the slave is sent to them to tell them something. Verse 17, tell them this, Come, for everything is ready now. Now that's really the message of the gospel. Come, for everything is ready now. Everything's ready. You know, sometimes when there's one of these political fundraisers, they'll hold a dinner, and you can go to this political fundraiser, and there you've got the candidate, who's going to actually be there and give a speech, and it's $1,000 a plate. Sometimes there'll be a, a fundraiser for something else, and there's, a, there's celebrities there. And if you want to go and be close to these celebrities, you pay $1,000 to go to dinner. This wasn't one of those kind of dinners. It wasn't one of those benefit suppers where you, you donate as much as you wanted to. This wasn't even a potluck where you bought your, your bean salad along with you, you know. The, all you had to bring to this dinner was yourself and your appetite. It was absolutely free. The host was picking up the tab for everything. And he was inviting the whole town to come over. Wouldn't that be fun? Just a free dinner where you just enjoyed an evening with your friends and your neighbors. And, and he's doing it all at his own expense. So here's the message. Everything is ready. Everything is ready. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Everything's ready. Everything has been provided. God is offering a gift, the gift of everlasting life, of salvation through Jesus Christ. He's not asking you to pay for it. He's not asking you to earn it or deserve it. He's saying, come and receive it. It's ready. The work has been accomplished at the cross. Everything's ready. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has ascended. Sins have been atoned for. Reconciliation has been made. Everlasting life is available. Everything is ready. There's nothing you must do to prepare yourself for this. There's nothing you have to do to contribute to this. It's accomplished. The work is done. And he's saying, just come. Come and take. It's free for the taking. 
And then notice the first word of the message. Come, for everything is ready now. Come. That's really what we tell sinners. When we go around and knock on doors and talk to people and they want to know how they can have everlasting life, it's real simple. Come to Jesus. Everything's ready. It's all been done for you. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I've got nothing, but I don't need anything. God doesn't require anything other than that I come. Remember Jesus said, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, he says. He says in another place, All that the Father gives me will come to me. The essence of conversion is coming to Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Of course, if you come to Him, you have to leave what you were holding on to before. That's repentance. So you turn around. No longer are you facing all these things that you used to be so madly in love with, but God has opened your eyes to see those are just dung. It's worthless. He helps you to see that, and He helps you to see the value and the glory in Jesus Christ. And so, very freely, you turn around from loving these things, and you start approaching and going towards Christ. You come to Him. And that's when salvation takes place in the human heart. When that person comes to Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about physical motion. Like going down to the front and answering some kind of an altar call. That's, that's not coming to Christ. Coming to Christ is believing on Him savingly. He who believes in me will never hunger. I'm sorry. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Do you see what's parallel there? Coming and believing are the same thing. So if you want to be saved from sin, come to Jesus by faith and trust Him. The moment you trust Him, turning away from the old, embracing Him for your everything, your King, your treasure, your Lord, your Savior, you're saved. You're forgiven. You enter into a new life. So there we have this lavish gift described for us. Describing the gift of, of salvation that God offers all men. Now the second thing we see here is the universal refusal of man. So when the slave goes out and he invites all these folks in the town to come, how do they respond? Look at verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. So, how many of them made excuses? All of them. All alike. Everybody that was had the uh, personal invitation from that slave saying, come, everything's ready now. All of them turned him down. They started to make excuses. Now, let's talk about a few of these excuses. The first one is, I, I bought a piece of land. I've got to go look at it. Second one, I bought five yoke of oxen. I've got to go try them out. Please let me be excused from this feast. Third one, I just got married. I can't come. Now, think with me for just a minute. These are some of the most flimsy excuses <laughs> that I can even imagine. I've just bought a piece of land. I have to go look at it. How many people buy a piece of land with never looking at it? How many people buy a five yoke of oxen with, without ever trying them out? And even if they, they needed to try them out, couldn't they try them out tomorrow? You know, a day later? Third guy, I've just got married. Can't come. Well, how many women don't like to go to these free banquets and enjoy themselves? <laughs> you know, these excuses are just that. They're excuses. What they're really saying is, I really would rather not. I've got more important things to do with my time. There are other things that are more interesting and alluring and captivating and attractive to me than coming to your feast. So they make excuses because they don't really want to come. They'd rather be doing something else. And that's the sad situation with people that don't know the Lord. Since their eyes are blinded, they really see more glory in a dollar bill 
or more glory in a relationship or more glory in a job or a house or a car or a video game than they can see in Jesus Christ. It's happened often to us when we'll go out sharing our faith um, and we'll get to the end of the, the gospel and we'll say, would you like us to come back and share more with you? And sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm a really busy person. I just don't think I could fit that into my schedule. Really, I'm a busy person. What are they saying? They're saying, I don't really value what you're talking about. What I really value are all the things I'm doing. I've got to keep doing all those things because they're really, really important, valuable things. What are they? Job, uh, family, relationships, possessions, those kinds of issues. Those are the same things that they were talking about here. Land, oxen, uh, getting married. Today, maybe somebody would say, well, I just bought a new home. I've got to go fill it up with furniture. I can't come. I've just bought a video game, and I'm going to try it out for the next 24 hours. <laughs> I'm not going to come. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm moving in with my girlfriend. I don't want anything to do with religion. You know, same thing. People value everything else other than that which is extremely and infinitely valuable because they can't see. Their eyes are clouded over. They're blinded. And it's, I mean, we should expect this. We live in a fallen world. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one that seeks for God, according to Romans chapter 3. Uh, all are depraved. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of Christ. So Satan has done a number on this world. They, they just don't see. They don't see his glory. Now, what was the man who threw this party? What was his response when everybody started to make excuses that they couldn't come? Look at verse 21. The slave came back, and he reported this to his master. Then the head of the household become, became what? Angry. He became angry. If you spent thousands of dollars providing this free banquet and inviting all the people in your block, in your neighborhood, to come over and just enjoy a feast, and you went to great pains to provide it, and you and your whole family and all your servants have been working around the clock for weeks to get this thing ready, and then nobody shows up, how are you going to feel? I think you might feel a bit angry. How do you suppose God feels when he has gone to great expense by giving up that which is most dear to him, the only begotten son? He gave him for this world. And he went to great pains, great pains, to provide the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. How do you think God feels when we spurn him and say, I'd rather be doing something else? That's really not that attractive or alluring or captivating to me. This over here is where it's really at. Well, we know how he feels because Jesus tells us in the parable, God is angry when people spurn the gift of his son. Can you imagine anything more insulting to God than when he gave, he emptied heaven of its best and gave it for poor sinners and they say, no, nah, I'd rather be doing something else, Lord. It reminded me of um, the passage over in Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Who are the people that are going to fall into the hands of the living God? Who are the ones God's going to 
bring vengeance upon? Who are the ones he's going to judge? Well, it's those, he tells us in verse 29, that have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They have regarded his blood as unclean, and they have insulted the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace. So God has given his best. Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ is shed for them. The Holy Spirit comes and makes this message available and invites men to come, and they just trample underfoot Jesus Christ. They treat his blood as though it's unclean. They insult the Holy Spirit. Those are the people that are in this context will face the terrifying wrath of God on the final day. God's angry. You, you can't just say, eh, take it or leave it. I'm just not interested in that kind of thing. God will understand. God ain't going to understand. God's not going to understand. God has provided this lavish banquet, and he invites you to come, and if you spurn him, you provoke his wrath. So there we have the universal refusal of man. This is what man does when the invitation of the gospel is given to him. He rejects it. He refuses it. And he universally refuses it. And he will always refuse it unless something else accompanies that invitation, which we're going to look at next, which is the effectual call of the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice a word... In chapter 14, verse 21, <clears throat> the head of the household became angry and he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here. Now this is a different word than the word it was originally given in verse 16. This isn't an invitation. Originally, he just invited them. Please come to my party. <laughs> What he's doing now is not that. He's not simply inviting men, bidding men. He's, the servant is bringing them. He's fetching them. He's like, he's like that shepherd who goes after the lost sheep and doesn't just say, would you like to come back into the fold? No, he picks up the sheep and he puts the sheep around his neck and he walks him back and puts him in the fold. There's something more powerful going on in verse 21 than just a mere invitation to come to salvation. He brings him. Now, what are the four classes of people that he brings? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Does that cause any, any light bulbs to go off in your mind? From last week, do you remember those four categories being mentioned? It's back in chapter 14, verse 13. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. The exact same four kinds of people. Why would Jesus tell us that when we invite, have, a, have a reception or a party to invite those kinds of people? Because God does. God invites those kinds of people. And when you're inviting people like that, you're being most like God. Because those are the kinds of people He invites to His big dinner. Now, He says, go and bring them in here. Interestingly, He had to bring them in here because they couldn't come otherwise. A crippled man? A lame man? How's He going to come? A blind man? He can't see to find his way to this banquet hall. A poor man, <clears throat> he doesn't have anything to wear. He's got rags on. He has no means of being able to come to this feast and be presentable. They, they, they're unable. In themselves, they're unable to get there. And so the master says, go and bring them. Put them on the back of your donkey. <laughs> Put them on your camel. Put them on your back if you have to. Just get them here. <laughs> they're not coming unless you do it. So bring them. Notice also that they don't have excuses like these other guys do. They don't have any money. They're poor, crippled, blind, and lame. They can't go out and buy a piece of land. They don't have money to buy five yoke of oxen. And what woman is going to want to marry the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame? 
They've got no opportunities for marriage. So they don't have the same excuses that these other folks did. Their excuses have been stripped away from them because of their sad situation, their social standing. The things that were so alluring to other people are not alluring to them. And so they come. They're brought by this slave. <clears throat> Notice another word in verse 23. It's the, ver it's the word compel. Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in. Now that's a really strong word. The word means to force or to coerce. It's the word used in Acts 26.11 when the Apostle Paul was talking about how he had persecuted the church and he said that he tried to force these Christians to blaspheme. The word force is the same word for compel. Now how did Paul try to force these Christians to blaspheme? Well, he put them on the rack. He tortured them. He whipped them. He beat them to try to get, to extort some kind of blasphemous confession from them. He did whatever was necessary to get them to blaspheme. So what does God the Holy Spirit do in order to bring a sinner to Jesus Christ? He compels him. He does whatever is necessary to bring that person to Jesus Christ. On his own, that guy's not coming. He's going to make excuses till the day he dies, unless something further happens within him. The Holy Spirit's really good at getting down inside of a person and changing things on the inside so that he does come to Christ. Now, this brings me to the reason why I think this slave really represents the Holy Spirit. There is another parallel parable in Matthew 22. But there are some differences between Matthew 22 and Luke 14. In Matthew 22, it's not a man who's just throwing a big dinner. It's a king giving a, a wedding feast for his son. And after this feast is ready, he doesn't send one slave out. He sends a bunch of servants out to gather in the people to this wedding feast. So over in Matthew 22, I believe all the servants that are sent out to bring in the people to this feast, they represent us, the church, the witness of the church, comprised of preachers and teachers and evangelists and missionaries and regular Christians who witness to other people. So this is talking about the witness of the church bringing in the people. But over here in Luke, it's not several slaves. It's one particular slave. And this particular slave is told to bring them. He's told to compel them to come in. Now, there's no human being on earth that can compel another person to have faith in Jesus Christ. I know that Islam seeks to compel people, to force people to convert, but that's not the way with Christianity. We can't force externally someone to embrace Jesus Christ because it's a matter of the heart. But there is a person who can do it. You and I can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can because He's God and He's got all power in heaven and on earth. He's omnipotent. He can get inside any sinner's heart and He can change that heart to bring that person to Jesus Christ. This brings up the two kinds of calls in the Bible. Theologians speak of the general call and the effectual call. So the general call is the call of the preacher. He invites people to come to Jesus to be saved. This is the call that we give when we're witnessing to somebody about Christ. And we'll tell them, just come to Jesus and you'll be forgiven. This call only reaches the ears of the person that you're speaking to. And almost always, it's refused. <laughs> you think, why do we go out and even issue this call if it's always refused? Because there's another kind of call seen in Scripture. This is the effectual call. The word effectual stands for effective. It gets the job done. It's not just a call that reaches the ears. It's a call that reaches the heart. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit does some tinkering underneath the hood. 
what, what needs to be done for someone who has no interest in the things of God? What needs to be done for that person to be converted? He's got to want to be converted. And he doesn't right now. <clears throat> His want to has to be changed. And what is that want to linked to inside of this man? His heart. Now, I can't change, just magically change my heart. But God can. And when God converts somebody, he changes their heart. Ezekiel 36 says that when the Spirit of God comes, he will change their heart. He will take out their heart of stone and he'll give them a heart of flesh. He'll put his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes and obey his ordinances. And that's what happens when this effectual call goes forth. Not just a general call that we issue, but the Holy Spirit who is omnipotent works so deeply and radically within the heart of this sinner that he starts to want Jesus for the first time in his life. He, he, he wants to give up sin. He wants to repent. He wants everlasting life. Do you remember Christian and Pilgrim's Progress? He wanted eternal life, and his family tried to persuade him to stay, and he put his fingers in his ear, and he yelled, Life! Life! Eternal life! <laughs> That's what happens when the Holy Spirit starts to effectually call an individual doesn't matter what obstacles there are in your life, you will overcome them because the Spirit of God is at work. And you say, Brian, do you mean to tell me that God forces people against their will to become Christians? It's like he put a, puts a gun to their head and says, become a Christian or else. You know, is that what God does? No. I don't know any Christian who believes that God forces people against their will to become Christians. He doesn't do that. He just makes them willing. <laughs> nobody becomes a Christian that doesn't want to God just makes him want to it says over in Psalm 110 verse 3 thy people will volunteer freely in the day of your power what's he saying that we volunteer to become soldiers in the army of Christ and we do it freely in the day of God's power when that effectual call hits us we freely offer to sign up. We're all in. And so the Lord simply comes and makes people willing. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Spirit, I'm sorry, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draw, you might get the impression that that's just sort of a woo. You're just wooing people. That's not what it means. If you look up that Greek word and find out how it's used in the rest of the New Testament, it means to drag somebody. It's used of dragging people into court. No man can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him drags that person. <laughs> and he drags them by changing their hearts. He overcomes their resistance by a superior power so that they now want salvation and they're willing to let go of sin and they're willing to have Jesus on his own terms. Now, ex we've talked about God making people willing by changing their hearts, but I want you to see something else in the text. The people that come into this feast are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. I believe these are the kinds of people that still come today. Not physically poor, crippled, blind, and lame, but spiritually crippled, poor, blind, and lame. These are people who, who know this about themselves. Now, how, how do they just wake up one day and figure out, hey, you know, I'm really spiritually crippled. I'm spiritually poor. I'm spiritually blind. I, I'm, I'm unable. It's because the Holy Spirit does that work in their heart. He shows them this about themselves. He shows them their wretchedness so that they humble themselves under God. They, they lower themselves to the ground. They put their mouth in the dust. And they say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, how did that ever happen? They were proud the day before. It's because the Holy Spirit has humbled them. He's He's taken away the blinders so that they actually start to see their wretchedness and their sin.
and they see, I, I'm poor. I'm a spiritual pauper. I'm crippled. I have no power. I'm blind. I can't really see. And I'm lame. The Holy Spirit does this work so that we see. We, our own estimation of ourselves becomes this right here. And we bow low. We feel our need for Jesus. Before, we felt no need for Jesus, but the Spirit of God working within shows us that we have a great, desperate need for Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit makes us an offer that we can't refuse. The offer of Jesus becomes irresistible to us because we see our desperate situation and must have Him or we know we will perish everlastingly. So there we have the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. There's only a few places in the New Testament where this general call is mentioned. Over in Matthew it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. There's an example of the general call. Few people are chosen, but many people receive this general call to salvation. Every time the gospel is preached, this general call is going out. But when you look at the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, and you read that word call, Almost without exception, I can't think of any exception, it's talking about the effectual call of the Holy Spirit that brings people, actually brings people into the possession of eternal life. Now, having seen this parable, we've seen God's lavish gift, man's universal refusal, and the Spirit's effectual call. What do we take away as application? Well, let me speak to you, first of all, if you are not sure if you're saved. If you're not a Christian, what does this speak to you? Well, if you want to eat bread in God's kingdom in heaven, you've got to come to Jesus now. There's a feast prepared for you right now. And you've got to come. Everything's ready. Christ has been sacrificed. Christ is risen. Christ offers everlasting life, but you've got to come. You can't just sit there and say, yeah, I bet if I did come, I'd get saved. You've got to come. You've, you've got to make this motion of the heart of faith. You've got to cast yourself on the mercy of God and receive the gift of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. You've got to come. You've got to turn from the old life and turn to Jesus. And so that's my exhortation for you this morning doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. doesn't matter if you've gone to church many times. Unless you have come to Jesus in faith, you're still lost and you still need Him. But He's available for you. He holds out His hands towards you and says, Come to me, all of you who are heavy, heavy laden. Come to me, I'll give you rest. But if you're a Christian this morning, there's a couple of ways that the Lord would have you apply this. Number one, keep coming to Jesus and keep enjoying the feast. You don't get to eat of this feast once. You get to eat it your whole life long. We're talking about communion with Christ. Every day of your life, you can enjoy this banquet that he set forth. Jesus is the banquet. Every time you go to him in prayer, Every time you worship Him, every time you open His Word and He speaks to your heart, you're eating of that banquet again. You're enjoying Christ. You're delighting in Him as your all in all. So my encouragement for you is keep eating. Keep enjoying Him. Keep coming back to that banquet table day after day after day. And then secondly, the second message I think that is here for the Christian, God has called us to bring Jesus to people but we'll never be effective at this without the power of the Holy Spirit. Haven't we seen that today? He's the slave that can bring the person in. <laughs> I can't bring him in. I can't compel anybody to become a Christian, but the Holy Spirit speaking through the gospel can do it. And so this means we've got to be people of prayer. Before you ever talk to someone about Jesus, pray. Pray, pray, pray about it. After you've talked to them, and before you go back to see him again, pray again. This has become one of the things 
um, in my own prayer life that I found that I'm praying more and more and more for. I'm praying for the salvation of souls. I'm praying for the power of the Holy Spirit upon the gospel. Because only God can give life to dead sinners. And so, you know, the Lord is calling every single one of us to be busy in inviting others to Christ. This isn't a job just for the pastor, or the evangelist, or the missionary. It's your job. It's my job. It's all of our job. This last week I was looking on Facebook and seeing posts, post after post after post after post, about this whole fiasco with um, the videos with Planned Parenthood and how they're showing uh, how that they are actually harvesting organs and selling them for a profit, which is diabolical, it's wicked. And the, the, the whole thing of, of legalized abortion in the United States is wicked and grievous to God, and there's no doubt in my mind that God's bringing judgment on our nation because we're murdering over a million babies a year in this country. And so I absolutely agree that abortion is sinful and it is wrong, but the thing that got my attention is some people that are so passionate about this issue are not passionate about people dropping into hell for eternity. They're passionate about saving babies' lives, but they're not passionate about saving people from eternal fire. And I just, I, I can't understand that. It's a million times more important to save a person from perishing than it is to save a baby from physical death. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I certainly do. So all of us should catch the passion of Jesus, that that is his mission in this world. That's why he came. That's why he's got his church here. If, if this wasn't our mission, as soon as we were saved, Jesus would just take us to heaven right then. But he's got a job for us to do. And so I, I invite you to come along with us and get involved in that mission and start to busy your life with making plans of sharing Christ and inviting people to come to Jesus. And let's see what the Lord will do with a few disciples who are sold out to do what He told us to do. And let's pray, right? Let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to do what we can't do. All we can do is give out these words. And that's it. They're, they're words. But the Holy Spirit can take those words and He can invest them with such life that He can bring life to dead sinners. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would You please do what we can't. We do pray, Lord, that You would give power to the preached gospel, give power to the word that is witnessed between one Christian and a lost person. Lord, give power to the words that have been spoken over these last several months to dozens and dozens of people. Exalt Jesus Christ, Lord. We pray that you would change hearts so that people want to come to the feast and they want to eat and they want to partake of Christ. And Lord, help us just to be completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen.